0: I 94 on Lumpen Radio.
1: And good morning once again. My name is Jamie Trecker. You are listening to I 94 here on Lumpen Radio. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. And today we are going to be discussing an imprint called Archipelago Books. We have uh, Kendall, uh, the publisher, coming in, calling from New York. Kendall, are you there?
2: Yes. Hi.
1: How are you today?
2: I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having
1: me. Thanks so much for joining us. Archipelago Books, for people that don't know, publishes fiction and literature in translation. And today we're going to be having uh, a number of selections from those books read to us. uh, And we're going to start off. Jeremy, why don't you take it away with uh, the copy of the book that you read, because we covered, I think, five or six books from this imprint.
0: Yeah, five, I think.
1: Five. So pretty interesting stuff. For those of you uh, who might have remembered, this was on the schedule in November. Unfortunately, Kendall uh, was sick during that show. So we have rescheduled it for now. And today, of course, we are taping on January 7th. Yeah, thanks for coming back, Kendall.
2: Thank you so much for having me back.
1: Guys, you want to start off discussing uh, what Archipelago Books is? Kendall, why don't you give us some of the background? Obviously, you're a nonprofit press. You do world literature. You've, You've published close to 100 books. Is that correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah, over 100 at this point. Um, We do about 12 to 16 books a year, and the press was founded in 2003 by Jill Schoolman um, when she was just 35 years old um, out of her apartment in the West Village in New York. Um, And uh, it was just her and her cat and then I think an assistant in the very beginning, and it sort of um, grew up from there. And uh, we have books translated from over 30 different languages, at this point, um, we are a nonprofit. Um, we uh, we publish classic and contemporary literature and translation exclusively translations, actually. Um, and uh, and so, at this point, um, we've also started a um, children's book imprint. Um, we're translating picture books um, from languages uh, um, into English. So um, so yeah, Archipelago Books. Um, Uh, is a huge part of my life. I've been there for five years now, um, and I'm very excited to discuss um, some of our our latest books.
3: Kendall, I had a question for you. This is um, for our our listeners that may not know, and I I don't fully understand it either. So your imprint has books from all over the world, Africa. Um, I read a book from Bosnia, Bosnia Herzegovina, and there's just a myriad of countries, how do you find out about these books? Because some of them aren't huge blockbusters. Um, I know, you know, you you guys put out the, my struggle series, which was a, was a big one, but these, these lesser known authors that people, how do you discover them? Are they submitted to you? And how does the process work for, let's say, you know, a, a work in translation from Africa?
2: Yeah, of course. Well, the books come to us in all sorts of different ways. Um, primarily actually from literary translators that we work with um, and that we've been working with for many years. So occasionally um, a book will come to us through an unsolicited submission. Um, Sometimes they'll come to us through agents. Um, Sometimes they'll even just come to us uh, from emails into our info box, um, sort of interested readers. Um, And we also have relationships with foreign publishers and foreign editors, foreign agents. So really, I mean, each book has its own... Story um, and yes, the Carlotta Canals books, my struggle, are certainly our, you know, best-selling books. That's our, that's our New York Times um, bestseller, and fortunately, all of the attention that we've gotten from those books has um, brought more attention to our our other books, our sort of lesser-known titles. Um, we've seen um, the press grow because of that extra attention. Um, in terms of the, the, the African literature specifically, Jill has a special um, interest in African literature and um, she has relationships with many sort of prominent um, writers and editors there, um, including some of our early authors, um, Brayton Brayton Bach um, among them. So I think it's sort of an organic thing, you know, the, the conversations begin began early on and um, from there, we're always getting, you know, tips from from friends and people abroad about what books we might be interested in. And Jill often reads the African books um, in French translation or if they've been written in French originally, you know, in the original, um, uh, before we decide to take them on.
0: For you bookstore fiends out there, you might, um, you might have come across and recognized archipelago books physically without under- knowing that it was archipelago. They have a really unique... Format and size to their books. I don't. I don't know the exact size. Um, they're all a little bit different, but none of them are the typical. What? They're not a half. Yeah, they're not typical or,
1: trade desk. It, it reminds me very much. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. That I'm assuming that was a conscious decision on your your guys's part because it kind of mimics what I remember. Uh, in a sense, the feel of the old Penguin books. You know, the, when you picked up a Penguin mm. book, it always had the same kind of look to it, and it, it kind of carried over that sort of brand quality that you expected from from the book. It made it recognizable on the shelf. Is that something you guys went for as well?
2: Yes, absolutely. We wanted to have, I mean, many small presses um, do this. NYRB does it as well. Um, you know, the to have that uniform um, look, it, it helps you as a as a small, small press. Um uh to sort of stand out and and for for the average reader to sort of um maybe even unconsciously recognize you know um oh this looks like this other book that I enjoyed reading I did it um, for sure
0: before I knew yeah, yeah. archipelago's name yeah
2: absolutely yeah, yeah no that's great to hear i mean we the books are all sort of different shapes and sizes which is um which we kind of we kind of make a decision about each book based on you know the the page links and and so on but um but yeah, that most of them are sort of a square shape, um, and then on the on the front, you'll see there's sort of a, a framed image, um, a piece of art in the middle of the book. Um, so yeah, I, I quite I quite like the design.
1: One thing I wanted to ask you before we and we are going to discuss uh, Karlova's work as well before. Uh, for too long but i want to ask you just because i think it's of interest to our listeners obviously you guys have the hardback rights to this and, and fsg has the paperback rights to this um was that something that allowed you guys as a press uh you know in the record industry which i have some knowledge of you know when when people sub license albums to other labels it usually is a way for a smaller label to make money off a bigger mm-hmm. house and support a whole bunch of other projects is that the case for you guys as well
2: yeah so our, our our relationship to the my struggle series it's it's actually kind of a it's a sort of long story but i'll try and and, and tell it quickly um we uh jill Jill found a book published by Ove Knausgard that was not the my struggle series it was a, a a book um that he wrote before the series called a time for everything mm-hmm. um yeah. which is a really exceptional book i don't know if if, if any yeah, of you've read it but I've it's, read um it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so sort of biblical stories, but on a Norwegian landscape, and very strange. And um, and that was the book that sort of made Jill um, you know, that that sort of um, you know that that sort of convinced Jill that she wanted to publish everything that Canalsgard did um, because he's just such an exceptional storyteller. And um, so when the My Struggle series came to our attention, we we went for world rights, but were such a Small house, but that was very difficult to do, and we ended up sort of um, doing a co-edition with um, with Secker, Random House in the UK. Mm-hmm. So we did the US editions, um, and they did the you know the editions elsewhere and in English, and um, and then eventually uh, the I believe it was the agent Carla's agent who um, you know asked if we would be willing to sell the paperback rights, and for us, you know, as a very small nonprofit. Um, that sort of income was very important to us, especially at that time. Right. and um, so we sold those paperback rights um, for that extra income. And the relationship has proven to be you know really healthy and and wonderful. so um, so yeah, we're, we're we just published the hardcovers in the US now. Right, And of
1: course, the, just for people, we, we are going to discuss the series, but my struggle is a six-volume doorstop of a series
0: uh, that has proved
1: to be a bestseller and a curious bestseller, kind of like a Elena Ferrante's book. I so. think
0: 3,600 total pages. Something, something like that. that. Yeah. I, I read yeah. every one mm-hmm. of them, so it's uh,
1: it's. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, That's great. Do you guys you want to j- jump into a Marlboro, start going around the room and talking about some of these titles? We have readings from all these books as well that we're going to play, but Jeremy, you want to sure. jump in?
3: Um, and this one's a classic. Kendall was mentioning that there are, you know, brand new books and then classics, and I I don't know what the time frame is for a classic. Is there one, Kendall, or is it just kind of if it's a classic, it's a classic? I, I'm a librarian, and we used to put classic stickers on the books, but there became a debate on what defines a classic and what is a classic, and how do you, you know, mm-hmm. is it a classic to one person and not a classic to another person? So we don't sticker them anymore. Um, so, I'm gonna say this is a classic because it's from the 90s. Is that a fair assessment? Sort of a
2: a, a, con- a contemporary classic. A I contemporary would
3: say, yeah. classic. That's a good okay. way to, <laughs> to thread yeah, the needle <laughs> there, Kendall. That's an excellent uh, way to put it. Um, and I am not a very good um, pronun—I'm not very good at pronunciation of foreign authors, but I'm gonna say Malenko Jurjevic. Is that?
2: close? Yeah,
3: Milyanko Mil- 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 Yurgovich, I, I believe, yeah. Milyanko yeah. Um and this book, I actually, you guys sent us a bunch, and I actually had this on my shelf. I, I, I'm a fan of the of the imprint. I I, um, I frequent a lot of independent bookstores in Chicago, particularly 57th Street Books, and I, whenever I see your, you know, and it's that, what we were talking about, the design, I grab them, but this was on my shelf, and I ended up reading it for the show, and I ended up loving it, but it sario sarajevo marlboro is a it's a series of 27 stories um written by a croatian author um it was translated from the croatian and it's about the uh you know the situation during the war in, in the former yugoslavia and it's um as as you can imagine it's it's pretty intense subject matter um it's not something i would recommend to my mother um but, but if you're, um, you know, it, it's in a weird way, I, I, I liked how the stories were interconnected, but I'm not saying that it, it reminded me of the writing of the things they carried, but the structure, um, it, it just kind of brought a, um, just the way that the stories were interconnected, it really gave you a good idea of what it was like, um, and there was also this kind of this like passive pain that you feel throughout the novel, or, excuse me, throughout the stories. Um, one in particular, um, I read the whole book, but we're going to talk about two stories. One is The Gardener, which we have a reading from. But there was another one um, called A Diagnosis. Kendall, has it been a while since you've read this? Or
2: Well, I actually, it had been a while. And then um, because of this show, I went back and sort of refreshed my memory and I um, it was such a pleasure, you know, I mean, pleasure is sort of an interesting word to use here since these are wartime stories, but um, to return to this book was, was really special um, for me uh, because I love these stories. I mean, I think they're so exceptional.
3: They are exceptional, and I was blown away. I, I you know, I was telling Mike and Jamie this morning before the show, we usually all have a little pile of books for the show and not for the show, and we, we're, we have a little, like, literary gathering in the mornings on Sunday over coffee. It's usually quick, but... Um,
1: I think Kendall makes a good point, actually. I want to back up just for a second, because sure. she said, you know, she found reading the stories pleasurable, and I think that's a really interesting thing that we we sometimes delve into. These are not pleasurable stories in oh, a weird way, oh, but... Oh, man, wait till we get to uh, that. I know, with, you know, <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, and, and some of the stuff that we're going to come to, you know, we, we talk about, a, there's a book also by an Argentine author who was tortured by the, by the Junta that we have an, an excerpt from as well that's also very grim. This is an interesting thing because we do read for pleasure. You know, one of the things we do is is reading as a diversion is something that you do solo. It's an enjoyable act. I'd, I'd really like to dig down on this. Is can you find pleasure in a weird way in reading about horrible things?
3: Absolutely, and you know that for me. I, well, I
1: know, but I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Because it, it seems very oxymoronic.
3: Well, think. Okay, the example that I use, and I get back to this a lot because it's one of my favorite books. Uh, is blood Meridian and when I recommend it to people at the library, I say it's the most beautifully written carnage that you've ever read. you know right. it's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's but it's horrific in, in, in its content. And um, you know there's there's always the argument. it's like do we you know when we read for pleasure do we want to read about things but do we also want to bury our heads in the sand? Um, one of the one of the criticisms I read of the read of the collection of stories, discussed how, you know, the west kind of propped Tito up as, ba- you know, as balancing out um the former Yugoslavia and then after, you know, it kind of led the way for uh I can never pronounce his name, the the dictator after Tito, Milošević. Oh, Milošević. Yeah. Um and Slovakia. how the west, you know, they we kind of buried our heads in the sand during this whole thing. And, you know, I was always troubled, you know, like particularly like when we invaded Iraq the last time, they're like, well, Saddam Hussein's a really bad guy, so we're going to invade Iraq. You know, that was kind of the, you know, I'm obviously summing up here, but like the the stuff that was going on here was beyond horrible. It was ethnic cleansing. It was systematic, you know, rape uh, of murder. of entire, genocide, yeah. Yeah, genocide. And they've been convicted of it too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so And, you know, we kind of just turned our back, and this is a European ally, you know, and I think in the title of the book itself, uh, for those unfamiliar, apparently, and I, I learned this from... Uh, from the uh, introduction and from some criticisms, but apparently Marlboro um, creates blends of tobacco in different regions of the world.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's, Marlboro Twenty Seven. Yeah, yeah,
3: so they, yeah. you know, so you can uh, get people addicted. And I used to smoke heavily, and I was uh, lived in Europe for a while, and the Marlboros there are different. However, that's neither here nor there. But um, you know, one of the stories: the guy opens a packet, and you see inside it says Syria of a Marlboro." So, and it's kind of like this hidden. Thing and I think it's it's reminiscent of like a theme in the book. It's like this this whole situation that's going on is kind of hidden from the eyes of everyone else, and no one was really paying attention. Um, and I, I think that theme kind of runs throughout the the stories. And would you would you think that's a fair summation of the theme, Kendall?
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think that. Well, so so what so what Yergovich did here was something really innovative. I think, especially at the time. Um, these are war stories, but they're done in this totally singular way, he sort of innovating, innovated this writing of, um, you know, everyday history, describing things as they are without any sort of exposition or sentiment added. Um, he ends up doing something really moving and really heartbreaking and something I think great literature does sometimes. He shows us at once, you know, why we insert meaning into things, into small things, into objects, and into people and places, um, and also reveals those objects and people and places as ephemeral or often ambivalent. But there's so much compassion in these stories and so much restraint, which is, I I think, what makes it, you know, a pleasure to read. These are deeply humanist stories showing the importance of human connection But also often,
3: you know, it's futility in the same breath, if that makes sense. Well, I I agree 100%. One of the things that you can really feel is there's a distance, you know, um, in the stories. And one of the stories that we're going to talk about, you know, they're getting water and a a woman gets hit by a sniper. And it's a friend of the, the, the narrator. And it's like there's a very and a lot of wartime writing is like this. There's a there's a distance between people, even though you may love or care about this person. But when people are getting killed all the time, you kind of have to have this, um, you know. And I'm a vet too, and it's it's we used to call it combat block, you know, where you just kind of, uh,
0: barrier,
3: you you bury your emotions and keep moving on because if you stop and look at what's going on around you, I mean, it's it's literally enough to
0: make you go insane. Before we uh, we get to the reading of the gardener, I want to get back to what what Jamie brought up, and I think that, you know, maybe for people who don't. Who aren't drawn to the darker side of literature saying you take pleasure in it might sound sadistic but they're all different kinds of pleasure and I, i i think for me anyway it's not a sadistic pleasure it's more like um being invited through a door that that a lot of people don't walk through and and being part of a conversation that uh, you're normally not privy to, you know, or growing up in a household where you just don't talk about certain things. All yeah. of a sudden the floodgates open you get access to everything. You know, it's, it's very interesting and pleasurable in that way, not so much like treating the, the horror as entertainment. Right.
1: Well, let's hear a uh, reading from it, and we're going to get back. We're, we're speaking with Kendall's story from Archipelago Books. This is a, a reading from uh, Milenko Yergevek, Sarajevo Marlboro.
4: People can be pathetic when they're dying. Sometimes they try to make you feel guilty. Jan Palak doused himself in gasoline and then lit the touch paper. Take the 80-year-old guy who can't bear to stop breathing. He's having a tube inserted in his throat while his relatives sit in the waiting room whining. Hospitals are full of people who grab hold of their souls. They fight over them like women fighting over bread in a bakery line while mortars fall outside. In the end, of course, some playboy living at Dolce Vita announces that suicide is the only real philosophical question. We were coming home with our water when the shells began to fall, so we ran into the nearest building. The hall was already full of people. Ivanka leaned against the wall and put her canisters down, but I didn't let go of mine. She lit a cigarette, and then the place just exploded. People fell to the ground, and then one by one they stood up again. All except Ivanka, that is. She didn't get up. At first, because there was no trace of blood, I thought she'd simply fainted out of fear. I lifted her head, but it didn't feel right. It was as though her neck was made of rubber. Her hair was covered in dust from the ceiling. I cleaned it off with my fingers. The emergency doctors rushed up in white coats, and a boy with a face like Kafka's tried to find the pulse on her neck. He was slow and methodical, as if he were playing the piano. I saw his fingers dance on Ivanka's neck. It made me angry. I just wanted him to stop, but there were lots of people around, so I didn't say anything. I think I was jealous. They put her on a stretcher and carried her away. Nobody spoke to me all the time I was there. The crowd began to disperse. I was left on my own between the four canisters. I picked up the two I had been carrying. Water was pouring out of them like the streams of water from those statues of little boys of Dubrovnik. Her canisters were still intact, so I picked them up and went outside. It was a beautiful spring day, and by now the sound of gunfire had vanished. I covered the 30 yards or so to our building and then decided to go for a walk, so I turned back and went in the opposite direction. Two soldiers were running along the bank. Some boys were playing kickball on the grass by the art school. One of them kicked the ball awkwardly, and I caught it on the volley. To be honest, if I hadn't, I think it would have ended up in the Mijaka River. I met Tadija by the Two Fishermen Cafe. He asked me where I'd been exactly when the shelling began. I was afraid that he'd ask me about Ivanka. He sat down on the wall in front of the restaurant, and he cut a cigarette in two with his penknife. He took the half with no filter. Wittgenstein was afraid of going mad, I told him. And that's why he became a philosopher. I don't remember what he wanted to be in the first place, a gardener or something. Tadija shrugged his shoulders and exhaled the smoke. A cold sore was visible on his mouth next to the cigarette. Ivanka's funeral was brief and rather superficial. When it was over, I went to the market and found seeds for carrots, parsnips, and lettuce among the old shoes and the ludicrously expensive tins of beef. I bought a few packets and went home along the back streets in order to avoid meeting people I knew. The washing Ivanka had done a couple days earlier still wasn't dry. I buried my head in a damp, white shirt. It's odd. Even when the sun shines, nothing dries. I cooled my face and pondered... Heraclitus only cracked jokes at his own expense, but Zeno made jokes against the world. Plato was a transvestite who dressed up humanity. Somebody should have bumped off Socrates to stop him making such a performance of his death. If you want my opinion, philosophy is just a video game. I put the shirt back on the line. My face hadn't left any marks on the fabric.
1: And that was a reading from Sarajevo Marlboro, read by our reader, as always, Shannon Van Volt, music by Jamie Branch. Thanks so much to International Anthem for that one. Uh, Pretty powerful and grim stuff. I think we were just talking before the break about whether you can get pleasure from that. Jeremy, I know you had a comment you wanted to make about that story.
3: Oh, when I was talking about this, like, methodical detachment, I guess, for lack of a better uh, description, he just was at, you know, he was at the, well, getting water with his friend, she gets sniped, and then you know he turns around, you know saves a kickball from going in the river, and then has a cigarette with the doctor, and then then the story goes on, and you know he become he starts growing uh, vegetables and, and and sharing them with the same doctor, and what I my interpretation of this and everybody's might be a little different, but it's like, you know, he's bringing life back into the world after, you know, after tragedy, even though it's in a very subtle way and it's just a few, you know, measly vegetables. But I think in situations of scarcity and terror, which this is, um, you know, sometimes the little things mean a lot and just to sum it up in a pretty simple way. And I think that's prevalent throughout the, throughout the stories. And, um, I, again, I, I think it's a I, I, it blows my mind, you know, when, when we do this show, just that some of these books, you know, there's so much garbage published and we have these, this book should be, everyone should, this should, kids should read this in schools, you know, and, um, I just was blown away by it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going to pass it on to Jamie and Mike when I'm done, but I, I just wanted to mention that, you know, that sort of present detachment is, you know, that's how we react sometimes in, in times of horror. So that's, that's what I got on that one. Yeah, and of
1: course, some of the other books we read, one of the one of the books we're going to move to next, and, and we'll get in a quick reading before we have to take a, a break. Uh, One of the other books that that Archipelago has published is a book called Nest in the Bones by the Argentine author Antonio de Benedetto De Benedetto is a guy actually that is not well known in uh, North America In South America His uh, novel Zama, however, was a bestseller uh, And he, uh, as I believe I I referenced earlier in the the, uh, program he published a number of collections in the 40s and 50s, but in 1978, he was imprisoned by the military dictatorship that then ruled Argentina. He was tortured. Uh, he was finally let go. He uh, was exiled, f- effectively, to Spain in 1984, and he would he would die a couple years later. Uh, De Benedetto is an interesting uh, person, and, and, Kendall, I'd like to just get your take on, on how this book can be published by you, because he's somebody that um, has become to be regarded as one of the great writers now of the 20th century from Latin America, but he's somebody that is very much off the radar still for for American authors. So what was it that made you guys want to champion uh, de Benedetto's work?
2: Well, I believe we'd always been aware of de Benedetto um, as a sort of giant of Argentinian and Latin American literature, you know, alongside Borges. And he was, you know, admired by Julio Cortazar, who we also publish, and um, Roberto Bolaño, among others, um, and of course, yes, NYRB um, published Zama, I think, a couple of years ago, which is yes, um, as you mentioned, one of his best-known works. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not actually, ex- I'm, I'm not actually incredi- uh, completely sure um, how the book um, came to fall on Jill's desk. Um, I know that I know that it's been um, in the pipeline for quite some time, um, but this is one of those this is one of those authors that just um, outside of the United States, you know, there's there's just a world of, of literature that we're not that that's not being translated into English that we're not aware of. If you go to Europe, people know who Dibenedetto is, people know who Yerkovich is. Um, so I think I, I think that this is one of those um, perhaps it's a discovery for people here, but it's certainly not a discovery in other parts of the world.
3: Yeah. I believe that it's 3% of books that are published in the United States are in translation. If, if that statistic still accurate.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to, um, to put an exact percentage on it and I'm sure it fluctuates in a small way each year, but sure. yes, that's, that's believed to be, um, the right number. And, um, which is astonishing, because when you look at other countries, that number is so much greater. Um, and of course, we do, I mean, the United States publishes just an exceptional number of books every year um, written in English. So there's that. It's a huge industry. But um, but there's, there's also kind of a, I think, a sort of a fear of, you know, and I think it's changing. I think we've seen a sort of steady p- proliferation of um, literature and translation over the past, you know, five, ten years, and people like... Elena Ferrante, people like Carl of the Knausgard, I think, give larger publishers, um, you know, a, a certain more faith and um, more confidence in, uh, in, in bringing on foreign books. But, um, but there's still this sense that, you know, if the author is foreign, if the author doesn't speak English, you know, you can't put them on the radio, you can't, it's harder to, you know, do events or do a tour and so on. Um, so there's a, bit of, there's a bit of resistance still, but I'd, li- I'd like to think that that's changing
0: with uh With such a small segment of the market being literary translation, um, i've I've noticed a small trend and a little bit of a, I pay attention to it of of um, literary translation programs growing in universities. There seem to be quite a few now, but the market's staying the same. so I imagine that makes it pretty difficult for for translators to make a living. What is archipelago's relationship like with its translators?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm very proud of our relationship, um, with our translators for one, as I mentioned earlier, they're frequently, the gatekeepers or the ones who introduce us to projects. Um, I think if I, if I could give any sort of advice to, um, the literary translators that might be listening, um, it, it's to, you know, to, to really champion your authors and to, and to pitch to, um, to small independent houses, um, and, and to build those relationships so that then down the line um, when you stumble upon, you know, a, a book in a language that you translate from, you already have these, you know, friendships with editors and so on. And you can and you can say, hey, look at this. You know, I know your taste. I think this is something you'd really be interested in. Um, we we're you know, we believe that translators are incredibly important. I mean, they're the most vital force in what we do, um, bringing these books into English in a way that, you know, um in a way that preserves the spirit of the text. It's just, I mean, it's it's a very, very difficult art form, and it's generally very thankless in terms of um, payments and so on. So we try and um, we put our translator's names on the covers of the books, which um, not everyone does. Um, I think it's done actually pretty rarely, especially among the larger houses. Um, We send translators on tour if if they, you know, are open to it and available. We try and do tours for translators, particularly when the author... Um, is either you know dead, which is the case, um, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, fairly often, or if the if the author doesn't speak English, so we, we try and involve the translators as much as possible.
1: Well, we've got to go to a break, but let's uh, we'll take it out with a reading from Nest in the Bones. This is from uh, Antonio de Benedetto, and then we're going to be right back with more from Kennel Story and Archipelago Books.
4: The impossibility of sleep is horrific. If you don't sleep, you can't dream. You can think and remember, but poor you if wakefulness turns loose memories and labyrinthine thoughts. You will suffer from them and from the yearning to sleep, because if you can't manage it, when tomorrow comes, you'll fall asleep standing up, and you won't understand your orders, and they'll beat you. During the day, the prohibition against lying down in bed, the prohibition against sleeping or dozing, the prohibition against sleeping sitting down in your seat, which has no backrest anyway and offers no support. If you fall asleep despite the prohibition, you'll freeze. You are surrounded by cement walls and windows without paints, with nothing but bars across them. At night, the guard wakes him, time and time again. One evening... The guard doesn't show, not even to glide down the corridors and pound the bars with his baton. Suddenly the light comes on, controlled from outside. It goes out, and with it the fear of a nighttime inspection when you would have to jump up naked and chaos and destruction would ensue. The light turns off, and when the tension goes slack, I return to my sleep and my fancies. Then the light erupts again, over and over, cutting off and on with interims of brightness as though to let flower all at once fear, disgust, and hope. It comes on, it goes off, all through the night. It goes off. The man dreams he is dreaming that the guard won't let him rest. The guard wakes him up with a violent shove and rebuffs him. You're asleep? Get up! It's daytime.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to I-94 on 1055 FM Chicago, WLPN. This is Lumpin Radio. Just before the break, we heard a selection from Nest in the Bones by the Argentine author Antonio de Benedetto. And we've been talking a little bit today about finding pleasure in horror and uh, I was actually the person that read uh, Nest in the Bones interesting book uh, because much of what De Benedetto writes about is coded language for other things. And it's interesting because we've we've talked a lot about in this program, particularly with with literature from Eastern Europe uh, during the Soviet era. There was a lot of coded language that was used uh, to talk about sensations, feelings, and political ideas that couldn't be openly published.
3: Chinese literature does that too. Yeah. Yes,
1: absolutely. And of course, we've talked about Cixin uh, Liu's Three Body Problem on the show uh, previously as well, which is another major work in translation that's that's found some success. We should give uh, them credit uh, as well over at Tor Books. But one of the things that was really interesting to me about this book, it you know, obviously, De Benedetto is is passed on. I would be very interested to see what he is going to make of our current political landscape, because. The things he was referencing was an autocratic government in Argentina that routinely prisoned uh, artists and members of the press. I-, I think he would have a great deal to say about our current political climate here in the United States. And uh, when I was reading the book, I thought quite a bit about that. And I wondered, uh, Kendall, if you could talk a little bit about whether that kind of resonance is, is one of the reasons you guys have put this, this forward right now.
2: Well, sure. I mean, there were so many reasons that we. It, I. I don't know that the political situation um, here in the U.S. was the sort of driving force for why we published it now. I think it just felt like an urgent um, work of literature, and you know, urgent in the sense not not just um, sort of in what it in in its political importance, but also um, in the prose itself. And that alienation that you talk about, the sort of um, you know the, the the bleakness of the of the work. Um, he manages to do that in his writing in this incredible way. I don't know that we ever really make decisions about um, the books that we publish in a sort of conscious, um, strategic way, um, you know, to, to sort of um, uh, comment on, like, the, the moment that we're living in. Um, but I think that that's what literature does on its own, if that makes sense. Um, you know, it, I think that great works of literature like this um you know, will always comment on our time in a sort of universal way, and the fact that you were, um, you know, thinking of our of our moment as you were reading it, that is incredibly reassuring to me because it means that, you know, even though we didn't consciously think to do that, um, that that that's that that's always what great literature does. Um, so it that that definitely um, that definitely confirms that what we're doing works. You know,
3: well, if you look at George Orwell, am you know, a huge Orwell guy, and. Animal Farm, 1984. I mean, you could, you can pull, you can almost pull the headlines out of today out of 1984. You know, War is Peace. You know, Facts are Fiction, etc. And it, it any, and it, that's, some of these political writings are timeless in that way because you know, these dictator, dictator esque governments aren't going anywhere, and they don't, you know, they all kind of have the same. Um, Pers- flavor. Can, yeah, flavor, <laughs> yeah, uh, if you flavor. will. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. Tang,
1: maybe. <laughs> um, we also want to move on. We've got a lot to cover and, and very little time. Mike, I know of course you've got a book right in front of you. It's another recent book that Archipelago published, Incest. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what's going on with that one?
0: It the uh, the author is Christine Anjou. It was translated by Tess Lewis. Um so I read two Two newer books from Archipelago: "Incest" by Anjou and uh, "For Isabel" by Antonio Tabucci, I think is his name. Yeah, that was a good book. That was a great book. That was a good book. Um, Incest has gotten a little more attention, I think. It seemed like from from where I've been peeking around. And this was my introduction to Christine Anjou's work. Does she have some other works already translated into English, Kendall?
2: Not translated into English. This is her. This is her first. Okay, but she ha- she
0: has. Um, quite a few publications behind her in her native France. Yeah, and
2: we'll be we'll be publishing more books by her okay. in the future.
0: Because she addresses her readership in this well, I don't know if I should call it a novel. On the copy I have it's not called a novel. Was it Mark? Auto fiction, well?
2: I suppose. Yeah, it's it's um it falls into that into that category of autofiction. So sort of autobiographical um, fiction. I
0: w I wanna get back to that theme in a little bit, maybe when we talk about uh my struggle, but um, in Incest, the, the narrator, Christine Anjou, whether or not it's the real Anjou or f- fictional, it's, um, it's up to the reader, I guess, um, is describing to us, we find out over time how her mind came to work as it does. Um, so the, the narrative is, is pretty erratic you're dealing with with an obsessive mind that's in the middle of a back-and-forth breakup with her lover around Christmas I think in 1999 and um, she starts to have flashbacks of um, sexual abuse um, an incestuous relationship with her father whom she met when she was 14 Um, did you what was your reaction when you read this book, Kendall?
2: Mm, I found it incredibly difficult to read, not mm-hmm. not just because of the content, but also because just formally difficult. Yeah, same. Um, the the it's a it's an overwhelming it's an overwhelming book to read, and even you know I, I, talking to Tess Lewis, who's an incredible translator and who's rendered this just beautifully. Oh, I was um, thinking
0: what a what a monster job
2: she had oh she, i mean she was exhausted i mean it con- it consumed her life and um in the way that i think this prose is trying to show you know um not not so much you know um i think there was a, a reviewer i mean it might have been elaine marglin she thinks she wrote that incest is astounding for what it refuses to do because there have been some recent memoirs on incest that are all about you know Healing, or um, for even forgiveness, or therapy, and she sort of avoids all that. And what she tries to do is show how it's, you know, just how that how that's consumed her life, and it's reflected in the in the language, which is so fragmented and chaotic. And you know, I really, honestly, I mean, I found it, I found it very overwhelming.
0: What it, what I, I did as well, but there are bursts of clarity throughout the book where um, either she's talking about memories she has from her past and it's it's very vivid and straightforward her recounting these memories or when she's talking about writing and what writing is for for her um yeah. and at one point in the in the book she says that she's writing this novel to show you how she went crazy um yeah so that there are, there are points in the book that that um shine through more clearly than others yeah well, touching on the
3: other point feel- oh sorry kendall go ahead
2: oh no i was just going to say that those are the sort of those are the anchoring moments that i think make yeah, make it possible for you to move through the book and and it's what I, th- I think it's really incredible what she's done um anyway go ahead
3: uh it's okay i was just going to mention you know it's it's very american to be like you know t- to have some kind of like romantic catharsis after their abuse in these you know in these memoirs and things that it's You know, there's always like this happy ending, and it's, you know, sometimes there's not happy endings. You gotta, it's years of intensive therapy. Well, she has
0: really messed up, complicated feelings. Yeah.
3: And, and that's, I think that's normal. I think that's what humans do, and we have this obsession with finding happiness at the right. end of the, you know, light at the end <laughs> yeah. of the tunnel.
1: You might not be referring to the Katherine Harrison book, are you? The I don't Kiss? know that one. Katherine Harrison's The Kiss, of course, came out no. in 97. That was the incest memoir that kind of oh. started the whole... No, I don't know. It I was just in thinking, like, that
3: whole wild, like, Cheryl Strayed kind no. of, you know, and being a librarian, I, these cross my desk all the time, and you know, it's... It, there's always like, you know, there's this we're, we're in this constant s- search for happiness, and happiness is fleeting. There's no, like, you're not going to end up in la-la land with bunnies on your shoulder. You know what I mean? It's just that's not how life works. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. the, the uh, you know, the pop psychology that we immerse ourselves in is more of a disservice than, you know, I. you could probably get a lot more out of writing this book than you could from, you know. Have you ever had a
0: bunny on your shoulder? Terrible. Okay. I've, had, I've had a bunny in my arms. Oh, uh, yeah, they're yeah. terrible
3: pets. They they're poop on everything.
1: We've got to move on. But one thing I did want to mention, because um, I did skim incest uh, before Mike took a look at it. It, it did remind me very much of Catherine Harrison's The Kiss. The The author, it should be, also known— Uh, is up for a major prize right now, the Albertine. She has won prizes, and she is currently, um, if I'm remembering correctly, she's on a talk show on France's number one channel, which is kind of their equivalent of The View. Uh, I've seen her come across there. But I did want to bring up one thing. This seems to fit into a pattern right now in French art. Uh, I'm thinking of the films Irreversible. Uh, There's a crop of new horror films coming out in France that are very female-centric, dealing with sexual abuse and sexual history. Um, And people that are interested in in this literature not only, you know, take a look at this book from Archipelago, but there's a wider movement that's happening in in French cinema and French art, and, and this does feel like it's a piece of it. Yeah. Moving on, we should talk about uh, your bestseller, because you do have a six-volume <laughs> doorstop of a book by uh, <laughs> from the frozen Nordic ways. Uh, Karl-Heinz must be the most unlikely bestseller that I can think of. It, it, for people that don't know who, who Nussgaard is, um, My Struggle, when it was initially released, caused a bit of controversy. First of all, because the title, which references Hitler's Mein Kampf, which means My Struggle. My Struggle is basically a six-volume um, purported autobiography of Norsgaard in various points in his life um, and one of the selections we're going to read I, I will point out that if you actually think for 30 seconds about this you will you kind of puncture the illusion that that Norsgaard is trying to to, to create because when you read the books um, they are very long they're almost banal in their prose they're very spare and kind of simple there's no flowery language nothing fancy what well, they are is immersive, however, and they purport to take you through the kind of very boring day-by-day existence of of himself and his family and his friends. Um, obviously the the excerpt we've taken from is from the third volume which is him uh, as a young boy growing into a teenager going to high school he's approximately uh, 10 to 12 years old here in this in this reading um, if you think about it again you know he didn't write everything down when he was 10 to 12 so all of this stuff that he is retelling to you obviously is mainly fictional but is made up on on true stories um, you will hear in the reading that um, it's while the pros, and I, well, I don't mean banal in a bad way, that's, that's not what I mean, because I think Noshkaard's used that himself. It is just a very kind of straightforward telling of what happens by the second in his life. And it's, you kind of have to experience it because if you do get into it, it's very immersive and very satisfying. If you don't get into it, it could be the most boring thing you've, you've ever read. So let's, let's play a, a quick selection here and then we're gonna get back because obviously this is an international literary sensation, has been a bestseller all over the word, world. Uh, this is Karl Oshgard's My Struggle a selection from book three.
4: Come here, Karlov, he said. <laughs> no, I said, not likely. "'I want to show you something,' he said, looking at his little brother. "'You reverse when I tell you, right?' his little brother nodded. "'Come on,' he said, moving to the bow. "'I took a few hesitant steps forward. "'When I was on the edge of the pontoon, he threw himself around my legs. "'Reverse!' he shouted to his brother. "'The boat reversed. I went into a crouch. "'My legs were pulled away from beneath me. "'I fell and was dragged over the edge because Jorn didn't let go, "'and the boat continued to reverse. "'I made a grab for the edge and clung on by my fingers.' Jorn's brother accelerated, the engine revved, and I hung there with my legs on board the boat, my body over the water, and my hands on the pontoon. I shouted to them to stop. I started to cry. The bystanders smiled and looked on calmly at what was happening. That's enough, Jorn shouted. The whole incident had lasted maybe a minute. Jorn's brother revved forward, Jorn let go of my legs, and I climbed up and walked off as quickly as I could, crying. The tears didn't stop until I was up by the rock face where I sat down in the hot, perfectly still air saturated with aromas of the sun-warmed rocks, dry grass, and wildflowers. I mauled over whether I should call Kaisha and ask her why she had broken up with me so that I could learn from it for the next time, but it was too complicated. I could hear it all now, her hesitation and my groping for words. For what? It was over. She didn't want to be with me, simple as that. Still weak at the knees and shaking, I got up and walked home. Washed my face slowly in cold water in the bathroom, drew the curtains, didn't want anything from outside to slip in, put on Motorhead, Ace of Spades, but it felt wrong, so I took it off and put on the new solo record by Paul McCartney instead, and started a Desmond Bagley book I had bought with my own money called The Vivero Letter. I had read it before, but it was about the pyramids in South America, the enormous underwater grottos where the protagonist dived in search of a hoard of gold others were also after. When I sat down to have supper, Mom looked at me and smiled. It might be time for you to start wearing a deodorant, Karlov. I can buy you one tomorrow. Deodorant? I repeated stupidly. Yes, don't you think? You'll be starting at the new school soon. You do stink, in fact, Ingva said. No girls like that, you know. Was that why? But when I asked Ingva about it afterwards, he smiled and said he doubted it was that simple.
1: And that was a reading from Carl Ovenoushgard. That was My Struggle, book three music, for that one from Marin Celeste, and we thank her very much for it.
0: Before, uh, before we head out, I wanted to talk about this theme that seems to be shared between My Struggle, um, Incest, the Anjo book, and I thought a little bit uh, For Isabel by Tabuchi. Mm. Um, the, the Tabucci book reminded me a little bit of Savage Detectives. I don't know if you read that one. By yeah. Bolanio, but it's it it has this this technique where we're learning about a character Isabel all th- secondhand through a bunch of different characters that the narrator meets on this mm, intercontinental journey he's taking. Um, but there's a prefatory note to for Isabel from the author talking about kind of justifying why he wrote this book and what he thought it might be about, and between that and the self-insertion and incest, and pretty much the entire theme of of my struggle—all these authors are battling with this with this um, idea: of Why why do I write? What is the point? And is that anxiety something you see being contemporary or timeless in, in literature, Kendall?
2: I mean, in a way, I think I I, I think certainly timeless, but I. But I would say that um, lately there has been a sort of resurgence of, of, um, of autobiographical fiction, and and also I think readers are very interested now more than you know they have been in a long time, in, um, in you know memoir and uh, you know biographical criticism, and, and 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 it's it's partly this sort of interest in um, the personality of the author, the celebrity of the author. Um, there's a blurring of lines and I don't know if it's social media, I don't know if it's, like, the information age, the internet or what, but um, but people, you know, even, even Elena Ferrante, who we never, we don't even, you know, know who she, she is, right. um, technically. Yeah, um,
1: well, we've got a pretty good idea. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> right, let's be exactly. honest about that. We have a pretty good idea.
2: That, that's true. Mm-hmm. At this point, that's true. But um, but we, but people, people are sort of obsessive about about the author, who is the author, you know, um, and, and how much of the author is in the book. And I think that all of these books that we've discussed today, cont- you know, the author is on every page, but um, but sometimes more explicitly. Um, and and yeah, I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought so much about um, the Tabuki and, you know, but, but you do feel that in the book. You get these glimpses of the author himself, of Tabuki at the end of his life still searching, still asking you questions, um, in the way that you do, um, in the Knaus garden, um, and certainly in incest as
0: well. Do you notice that from a marketing standpoint, is, is fiction just a lot harder to promote and sell than nonfiction?
2: You know, I'm, I, I think it is, um, I'm in the sort of fortunate position of not worrying so much about, um, you know, being being a being a very very small independent nonprofit, we don't spend a whole lot of time paying attention to like trends and marketing and that sort of thing. But um, but I would say that you know, based on all of my my friends in publishing and what I observe of the larger community, yeah, I think I think fiction is is more difficult to sell.
0: For uh, for those of you who had never heard of that author I just mentioned, it's not Tabuchi, it's Tabuki. As Kendall just pronounced, and it's T A B U C C H I.
3: Oh, it's okay. We're, we're, we slaughter names yeah. a lot. It's because it, there's no reference, no reference point. Sometimes, yeah. Our, our reader, yeah, uh, yeah. our
1: reader, wants to kill us some weeks uh, with some of the names that uh, I've thrown at. Uh, <laughs> I've thrown at her. I want to remind everybody, by the way, if you're if you're interested in finding out more information about Archipelago Books, they do have a website. As every modern book press does, it's archipelagobooks.org. That's .org, not .com, archipelabooks.org. Uh, Kendall, can you give us just real quickly, we only have a couple seconds here coming up to the end of the show, but you have a couple new releases coming out. Can you quickly run down what readers can expect from you guys this year?
2: Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm partic- we're particularly excited about a book called Love by Hannah Orstevik. Um, she's a Norwegian author. Uh, She's written a a very, very slim, um, very (laughs) bleak in the in the sort of theme of what we're speaking about today, um, book about a mother and son who've just moved to northern Norway. And it follows them both in their um, sort of sort of shifting between uh, between their two consciousnesses um, over the course of just one day. Uh, And it's it's just an astonishing little book. Um, We also have uh, we also have a book a book of poetry, um, which we haven't talked about any poetry today, but we have a book of poetry coming out by the great um, Gershom Sholem. Um, Mm -hmm. He's one of the 20th century's, you know, sort of maverick scholars of religion, um, sort of introduced the study of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism into the academy. Um, So, and he's been very influential for a number of poets. Um, And then I would say another one to look out for is a book called Pearls on a Branch, um, tales by tales from the Arab world told by women um, by Najla Cory, translated by Ania Um Khoury was traveling with this theater troupe um, during the civil war in Lebanon, um, going to putting on shows at Palestinian refugee camps and villages, um, and she was doing these plays based on oral tales. And so she was just traveling, collecting all of these stories. Um, so she chose a hundred of those stories and published them in Arabic. And then we did 30 of them in English. Um, and that's a really, a really remarkable one, too. And that's coming in March.
1: Great stuff. We've been speaking with Kendall Story. She is an editor at Archipelago Books again. Once again, archipelagobooks.org. They do literature and translation, some fascinating stuff, especially if you are a Carl Ove fan like I am. Quickly, before we uh, end the show, I want to everybody know we've got a very busy schedule. We're going to be speaking with uh, Evie Pachata next week. Uh, She's got a new book out. And then we are live at Haymarket Books the following Thursday. That's the 18th with Joe Allen. Uh, At Pilsen Books At Pilsen Books Excuse me He's a Haymarket Books author Uh, Pilsen Community Books That'll be at 7 o'clock as always That's the third Thursday of the month We're we're live at Pilsen Community Books Usually And I can tell you two things That are coming up E-viewing will be live with us On February 22nd at At Pilsen Community Books And not yet announced But it's coming up We will be doing a live show At Quimby's uh, In the near future We've got a, a pretty packed March schedule It looks like coming up
3: uh, we also have one of my favorite authors of all time, Gary Indiana. Gary which Indiana I'm will be super stoked about so. Gary
1: Indiana and Francis Fitzgerald will be on the show. Some some National Book oh, Award yeah. winners, yeah. right? I know. Just packing them in. All right, with that, I want to thank everybody as always for tuning in. Thank you so much, Kendall, for joining Kendall, us. Today. Thank you. Really appreciate for having it. me. Thank uh, you. You're wonderful. Thanks, Kendall. We will see you next week. This has been I ninety four on Lumpen Radio.
4: is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured work from Archipelago Press, additional music from this show from Justin Cholwa and the Lumpen and International Anthem Archives. The episode was our first of our second season and first aired on January 7, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I 94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit Lumpin'Radio.com. This program was produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker in 2017.